When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year. And the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Is the green transition at crossroads? Welcome to this Real Vision Deep Dive interview. I'm Andreas Sino, your host for the next 45 to 60 minutes, and I'm pleased to be joined by Surya Giante of ENEY LLC, an energy transition company. Surya earlier served as the energy unit chief at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, so a strong subject matter expert on the developments in Ukraine and the ties to the current turmoil in energy markets and the green transitions. Ria, it's a big pleasure to have you back here at Real Vision. Thank you very much for being with us. It's an absolute privilege. Thank you for inviting me back. First of all, um, given uh, your experience from Ukraine, I'd like to start with the status on the war and the ramifications for the energy market. So if we look at the current status in Ukraine, how important is the warfare for energy markets at the current stage of the war? Unfortunately, Ukraine has found itself mired in what is becoming not quite a frozen conflict because it's it's quite an, an active conflict, in fact, but it, it's become an inch by inch or centimeter by centimeter, almost World War I trench warfare effort to reclaim territory. Now that unto itself, doesn't affect energy markets. Traditionally, Ukraine was an extremely important country for energy, mostly as a transit country. Much of what Russia was transiting natural gas-wise into Europe went through Ukraine, which has by far the largest transit capacity. But then starting in August and ultimately ending in October of last year, so six to eight months after Russia began its full-scale offensive in Ukraine, Russia began to cut off gas transit through Europe, excuse me, through Ukraine to Europe. You saw Russia sabotage the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipelines. There have been, as we know, the recent sabotage of, of the Baltic interconnector, but also Russia, Russia just cut off natural gas. And that was not a sanctions response. Oil has been sanctioned. Some of the financial mechanisms in the markets have been sanctioned, but natural gas for the most part wasn't. And so it really was Russia trying to leverage Europe's reliance on Russian natural gas in an effort to keep the continent from supporting Ukraine and reacting punitively to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At present, the amount of gas that is now going into Europe through pipelines is down to approximately 40 million cubic meters per day through Ukraine, which is an incredibly small amount of gas. Uh, just to put it in perspective, in a cold winter, Ukraine uses about 21 billion cubic meters of gas. And the amount transiting is now only about half as much of that. And so Ukraine itself has stopped being an important energy country. However, what Russia is doing or is not doing in Ukraine at any given moment does have the ability to 
influence international energy markets and also has the ability just to scare international energy investors. And so although Ukraine itself is not at present an important energy country, it is nonetheless capable of roiling energy markets and making investors, both investors in energy production, but also, for example, spot traders, very, very, very worried about what could happen at any given minute. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Russian manufactured energy crisis that started in 2020 and 2021, especially as Russia began to build up towards the invasion of Ukraine, what in retrospect we can see was very intentional moves by Russia to restrict energy supplies, especially to Europe, that has left the entire world with incredibly thin uh, margins for error, so to speak. So energy markets remain very tight. And that means that any shock to the system has the potential of making prices fluctuate tremendously, but also causing additional chapters of the energy crisis. So although much of the world has come to, to see the energy crisis as having passed, we energy experts are aware that it is still very much unfolding and that anything unexpected, any large natural disaster, any war breaking out in the Middle East, any decision by Russia to change how much it's producing, how much LNG, how much oil it's shipping, any political change, for example, in an important energy country could send a big enough shock into the system that even non-energy experts will notice that the energy crisis has not ended. So given the sanctions on Russian oil uh, and the sort of transfer of flows from Europe and elsewhere to other regions, now China and India being the buyers of, of Russian oil mostly, how are we dealing without these direct flows of uh, fossil fuels from uh, Russia in the West so far? Well, the overall answer to that is we're doing quite well, considering uh, prices are still quite a bit above where they were before Russia invaded and before the 2021 energy crisis, but they're not astronomical. And we we did really see astronomical prices in 2021 and 2022. And right now things are survivable, but they're definitely not as low as they were before. But it's important to separate oil and gas. For, for this discussion, because natural gas is not particularly fungible as a commodity, by which I mean there's not that many ways it can be transported. You can send it through pipelines, or you can send it as liquefied natural gas, LNG, on tankers, essentially. And I guess theoretically, you could then move it in, in cisterns by rail, except that's just really not done very often. So with all of the pipelines, either not used or destroyed going to Europe. And there are still pipelines. There's, for example, Turkstream that is still transiting Russian natural gas. The natural gas itself has become a much more scarce commodity because the physics of natural gas are such that you can't simply turn the switch off on a natural gas well. It actually destroys the well and then you have to, dr you have to drill a new hole. So what Russia is doing is actually crippling its natural gas fields, but it does have some options. There is the power of Siberia pipeline that goes from Russia to China, and that's a approximately 30, 32 BCM, billion cubic meter pipeline. So about the same amount of gas is transiting Ukraine still, not very much. But Russia has been trying to negotiate with China the bringing online and construction and then bringing online of a second power of Siberia pipeline, which would have a capacity of about 50 BCM. That becomes quite a lot more gas. We're still not anywhere near the approximately 150 to 170 per annum billion cubic meters that Russia was transiting to Europe through the existing pipeline structure before it shut off gas transit. But it does provide an ability for Russia to continue exporting a considerable amount of natural gas, except now it's going to Asia. That said, global energy markets, even for natural gas, are quite interconnected. And so if China is getting more pipeline gas, which is much cheaper than LNG, considerably cheaper just because of the logistics that are involved, then China will need less LNG. 
And so what we've been seeing is that China, as a consequence of demand reduction because of its own economic and COVID situation, has been selling its long-term LNG contracts at a very advantageous price for China because the margin between what it originally entered those contracts at price-wise and what it can now sell LNG uh, on the market for is, is huge. So China's been making quite a lot of money by selling the LNG to which it has a right instead to other countries. So there is a little bit of a just sort of musical chairs going on. But that's much less true of natural gas than it is of oil. And oil is an extremely fungible commodity. And so although oil has been sanctioned, uh, or rather, well, yes, it has been sanctioned, but it's also had this $60 per barrel uh, price cap put on it, which has implications for the reinsurance market. So the, the goal of that was to make it impossible to get insurance for an LNG, excuse me, for an oil tanker that was selling above the price cap of $60 per barrel. But it's actually much more difficult to enforce because what happens is you take a country like India, which didn't buy any Russian crude until the invasion of Ukraine, but then saw a, an opportunity to buy Ural's crude at a $30 discount per barrel and said, well, now we should. And so, uh, excuse me, India began importing a million barrels per day of uh, of, of Russian Urals. Uh, and that means it's not buying oil from other countries. And so, again, it's going to reboot the Oil simply moves through international markets in such a way that prices generally end up lower. And it's very difficult to tell where the oil comes from. So Russia has been making a killing this year on crude oil exports, and it's primarily what's keeping the Russian economy and Russian government floating. And it's very, very difficult to cut those off because what will happen is we'll see a massive price spike, which will then trigger another inflation cycle, which Western governments don't want for political reasons and, of course, for the well-being of, of their populations. But... It, it also means that money continues to flow into Russian coffers. So we're doing a decent job of weaning ourselves, we, the West, off of Russian natural gas, but we are not doing a very good job of weaning ourselves off of Russian LNG. And in fact, European imports of Russian LNG spiked and have remained double what they were before the invasion. And there's no sign that they're going to go down at any time. In the, at least in the in the immediate short-term future. And meanwhile, demand for Russian oil really hasn't fallen off. It's just been a bit redirected. And with the OPEC decision to cut production by a million barrels a day to keep prices high, th those prices are then also high for Russia despite the price cap. It sounds like we're walking a uh, tightrope from a supply side perspective, both when it comes to natural gas and also to a certain extent in oil space. But if we look at the demand side of this equation, how big of a deal is this lack of supply in natural gas space for the Europeans, first of all? Do we have a demand side that actually fits the bill in terms of bringing the demand side down relative to the supply that seems uh, like it's still walking a tightrope here? Demand for oil and indeed for hydrocarbons generally, for fossil fuels, is still going up. And we, we saw a massive rebound in demand following the end of COVID lockdown. So the short answer to your question is no, we are not doing very well of weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels as a general matter. There are some projections that have fossil fuel demand peaking in approximately 2030, Oil experts will tell you they think that we're not even close to the high watermark of, of oil in particular, and that we're looking more at 2050. But it is true that Europe deserves some credit. Following the invasion of Ukraine, Europe, by necessity, did everything it could to reduce consumption. And that included, for example, beginning to turn off lights in public buildings and reduce thermostats by a degree or two. And so to take Germany, for example, Germany boasted a 25% reduction in its consumption. However, it's worth noting that a fair portion of that, especially in Germany, came from what is being widely described as deindustrialization. 
that what Germany did was turn off its factories. Now, that's partly because the factories decided to go offline. Or, uh, energy prices were so high that it became unprofitable uh, to continue operating at full capacity or every day of the week, and in some cases to operate at all. We saw a bunch of energy companies in the UK go out of business, for example, a bunch of supply com companies, because they are, are providing a regulated product that is subject to regulated prices at which they can sell it to the consumer. But meanwhile, because they hadn't actually hedged with long-term supply contracts for what they were purchasing, they, they couldn't get the energy inputs for anything less than four or five times what they had originally calculated. But they also couldn't turn around and provide that at cost to consumers because that would have bankrupted regular people. And so enough of them went bankrupt to cause a severe energy crisis in the UK and the, one of the resulting worst inflation crises as a consequence. But we really saw that in lots of places. The UK and Germany are just two of the examples. It would behoove the world to get off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible, not just for climate change and emissions purposes, but also if we were going to get serious about crippling the Russian economy, for example, then we would need to stop burning Russian oil and gas, and we still very much are. If we were going to get serious about having, eh, having some leverage with the Iranian um, government, for example, and I think reasonable people can differ about how evil an actor Iran actually is, although obviously the United States has a severe Iran problem, then we would need to get serious, sir, about some enforcing some of those sanctions, similarly with Venezuela, similarly with a number of other countries around the world. It would provide us a great deal of leverage to have a sufficiently diversified energy mix everywhere that we are not reliant on any one source. And that, I hope, is the lesson of the energy crisis, at least for Europe. It is a standard eggs-in-basket situation. If you put all of them in one, you're in a lot of trouble when things go wrong. And that's exactly what happened. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Given what we've just discussed, Surya, um, you wrote uh, a while ago in, in Times Magazine that Russia is also vital for the energy transition away from natural gas and oil. So how is that and why is Russia also important for the green transition? The importance of Russia as an energy economy and superpower really can't be overstated. It's in decline now, partly because of actions Russia has taken, for example, cutting off gas transit, which has a negative, very negative impact on its own natural gas wells and fields, but also because of sanctions. But nonetheless, Russia remains incredibly important on a number of energy fronts. And obviously, we've just spoken about natural gas. We've spoken a little bit about oil. But Russia is also critical for the mineral supply chain. So although it doesn't have the great uh, deposits of lithium that are necessary to make the batteries for electric vehicles that will help reduce emissions tremendously, it does have a lot of other minerals that are very, very important. It has a lot of copper. It has a lot of nickel, for example. One of the ones that's been discussed recently, and this is the one that I was talking about in that timepiece in particular, is uranium. Russia has about 10% of the world's global uranium reserves. And so it has a huge role to play in the nuclear industry supply chains. A lot of hope for the energy transition is placed on a nuclear renaissance, and rightfully so. But unfortunately, 
uranium isn't everywhere. The, and a lot of it is in Russia. But moreover, what Russia has is 42% of the world's uranium enrichment capacity. Now, enrichment is a carefully regulated industry uh, in some sect of an industry. And that's because of non-proliferation concerns. Because of course, uranium is also what goes into making atomic bombs. And so if you enrich it to a high enough level, it becomes what's called weapons grade uranium. But up into about 20%, you a 20% enrichment is for civilian nuclear use. It's for making nuclear reactors. And Russia has not quite a monopoly, but 42% is considerable per, uh, percentage of the enrichment capacity in the world. And what that means is that the West can't, as a practical and pragmatic question, sanction Russia's nuclear industry. And uh, we simply need it. Now, in the US, we just don't have that many nuclear reactors online because for the last 40 to 50 years, we've taken an abstinence-only approach to nuclear. But there are a lot of other countries in the world that are reliant. And because the Soviet Union and then subsequently Russia exported a lot of Russian nuclear technology, there are a lot of countries in the world that have Russian VVR nuclear power plants. And those run. Russian fuel. And that fuel was made by a Russian nuclear company, Tvel. Now that's not sanctioned, but it's also not a great time to be reliant on Russian fuel inputs of any kind, right? So especially including uh, uranium. So when the invasion started, the world had about a year and a half of, of enriched uranium backstock to keep things running. And there's been a mad scramble since then to try to find alternative sources and get some enrichment capacity up and running. This is also true, both sadly and ironically, for Ukraine. So Ukraine has 15 reactors, nuclear reactors, spread out over four power plants. The famous one is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which we have all heard of because Russia has hijacked it and is using it for nuclear brinkmanship. As a practical matter, it's not actually that dangerous, by which I mean it's incredibly resilient. So unless you're going to bomb it with bigger bombs than Russia is using, you're not going to crack it and turn it into a Chernobyl situation. Second, where it's located is just not, it's not a particularly dangerous spot. But you are looking at the possibility of spent fuel radiation spillage out of some of the spent fuel cooling ponds. And you are looking at the possibility of a contained meltdown if the cooling systems lose electricity. So that particular model of nuclear power plant relies on external power sources to continue operating. And because it takes nuclear reactions so long to end and the uranium so long to cool down, you have to keep the cooling systems in place for decades, honestly. And so without the cooling systems operating, you do run the risk of the reactor core overheating and a meltdown happening. But it wouldn't be a Chernobyl meltdown because uh, the reactor core can't burn. It has water in it. And it wouldn't, it would be more like a Fukushima issue where the cooling system failed, except that where Zaporizhia is, is we're not looking at a massive discharge over hundreds of thousands of people that will then ultimately get into the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, it does show the vulnerability of being reliant on anything to do with Russia for anything to do with, with nuclear power industry. Now, as of this week, Ukraine is no longer reliant on Russian TVL fuel for those power plants. The Canadian slash, to some extent, U.S. company Westinghouse has now begun fabricating the same fuel that is necessary to run a VVER reactor. And so there was big fanfare. Uh, Russia, excuse me, Ukraine is finally not reliant on Russian nuclear fuel. But the rest of the world still has a problem. And so we've been looking around for countries that could provide the uranium. Kazakhstan is a leading possibility. And in fact, Kazakhstan has what's called a one, two, three agreement with the United States, meaning it is pre-authorized for the transfer of American civilian nuclear technology. And so we could really make Kazakhstan a key nuclear power player. Uh, it, it's not that it doesn't do anything, but it, it could be ramped up considerably. 
And the United States has also been developing its own additional enrichment capacity. And this is especially important for the new generation of nuclear designs, what are called Gen 4 or advanced nuclear. And these are nuclear reactors that are cooled with not water. They're cooled, for example, with molten chloride or other salts. And those have the potential to revolutionize the nuclear industry because they are safer. Indeed, in some cases, they're almost entirely safe. Some of them have uh, internal fuel recycling mechanisms. They have passive safety systems. And nuclear fuel recycling has had such technological advances that fears of, well, where do we put the waste, which is the usual complaint, especially in the United States, are now completely unfounded because you can get the waste down to under 10%. And that's because so much of it can be repurposed. And so it's only waste if you waste it, is what these companies like to say. And they're quite right. So there is hope for the nuclear industry. But right now, it is certainly true that because it takes a long time to get new nuclear facilities, whether fuel enrichment facilities or whether actual nuclear power plants online, and it takes such a huge amount of initial capital expenditure to do that, that we are lagging a bit. And so for the time being, Russia is still a very key player in the nuclear industry. And that includes new developments in certain countries. So for example, Serbia and Hungary are both looking at Russian nuclear power plants, building them. Saudi Arabia also, and there's a bit of a political standoff because the United States is trying to get Saudi Arabia to adopt the U.S.'s what what is called by Americans and only by Americans, the gold standard of nuclear regulation as part of you can have our nuclear technology, but you have to then regulate it our way, to which Saudi Arabia says, well, why would I do that? Why would I take your ridiculously overburdensome abstinence-only nuclear regulatory system when I could just go get a Chinese or a Russian design and have none of these, none of this extra baggage to which the United States says, oh, but it's the gold standard, as if that's going to somehow settle the issue. So this remains a very hot international question. It remains a key part of Russia's ongoing role in global energy markets. It, it is, however, an area for, for um, optimism because it me, it is helping in the same way that the Russian invasion and ensuing energy crisis really got the energy transition finally properly started. That's also true for the nuclear renaissance. And so there is a silver lining on all of it, but it's going to take a few years for the rest of the world to dig itself out. If we look at the most recent trends in financial markets, it's relatively clear that nuclear is back in fashion, at least as an investment vehicle, um, and especially the trends seen in nuclear relative to the trends seen in wind turbines and solar are quite striking over the past couple of quarters. So what's your take on this change of trend in financial markets towards nuclear now being back in fashion relative to solar and wind? Is it what we should expect to continue over the coming years here? I cannot say this clearly enough. Nuclear is the only viable possibility for a proper energy transition. And that's because wind and solar are fantastic. However, they are not scalable to anything like the necessary level to satisfy still growing energy demands in countries around the world. You also have with wind and solar a dispatchability problem. Wind and solar are, newsflash, reliant on wind and sun. And as the world noticed in 2020 and 2021, when the wind stopped blowing in the North Sea and the sun stopped shining in the Mediterranean, that these things can happen. And with climate change, weather patterns are shifting. It becomes very difficult to predict with the same certainty we could 100 years ago where the winds will blow and where the sun will shine. So the only way to make grids grids that are reliant heavily on wind and solar really safe is to do it with battery storage systems. Battery storage systems basically take the electricity that wind and solar plants have generated, and when it is not being used, store it so that 
when there is a dearth of generation down the line, you can pull it out of the storage. Battery storage systems are fantastic technologies and they're pretty simple technologies. It's the same as any battery. However, they add cost. It's about half a million dollars per megawatt. Uh, it goes up a little, the, the cost goes down a little bit marginally as you make bigger and bigger battery storage facilities, but it doesn't go down much because a lot of it is the battery itself. And so there's not that much marginal cost that can be spread out. So that adds to the cost of wind and solar. Now add the fact that, excuse me, China has, has decided to start playing high hardball on a lot of renewables commodity trade in order to get political leverage on the international stage. And it has recently banned the export of a number of minerals that are really important for building the batteries that will fuel the energy transition. They also have a close to monopoly on wind turbine manufacturing and solar panel manufacturing. And the world, the rest of the world hasn't caught up yet. And so with China carefully not exporting what is necessary for the continued expansion at pace of wind and solar with the dispatchability drawbacks of wind and solar, with the fact that it requires there's battery grid scale battery storage systems in order to be reliable, it becomes a lot less a perfect solution. And meanwhile, you simply can't have enough wind and solar in order to meet demand. And so that gets us back to nuclear. And nuclear really is the only clean option that can provide full satisfaction for global demand. It will allow the fueling of electrification, which is the only meaningful, in terms of scale, solution to climate change. We have to make everything electric. There are a few things being kicked around otherwise. For example, hydrogen. Hydrogen doesn't make much sense to anybody who's, who really is following it, and that's because in order to make hydrogen, you need electricity. So instead of using the electricity that you're generating to make hydrogen, you could just use the electricity. So it adds this next step, which of course adds costs. But then meanwhile, there's no market for hydrogen at this point. We don't have the engines for a mass transit sector overhaul for hydrogen. So hydrogen may end up being useful for some sects of the economy, like shipping, for example, possibly aviation, but it's not going to be a solution to mass energy transition needs. But nuclear is. Uh, nuclear, however, requires a huge amount of capital infusion up front, and then ultimately over a 60 to 80 year life of the nuclear power plant becomes extremely cost effective. But if you're looking at the numbers today, it requires a huge amount of money today and a huge regulatory burden to get the approvals and the licenses, export licenses, construction, security, seismic cushions. It's a very complicated process. And the countries that don't have an overly burdened nuclear regulatory system, hint, hint, not America, uh, are going to find that they can move faster uh, as the new generation of nuclear comes online. But also, as mentioned, that new generation really eliminates most of most of what were, to the extent they were, legitimate concerns about nuclear safety, uh, because they, they, those those concerns simply aren't really a play with the new and advanced generation of nuclear. So, Zaria, how do you view the political landscape around nuclear currently? We've seen a couple of U-turns in Europe, for example, in Sweden, when it comes to uh, nuclear as part of the energy mix. So across the West, do you see tailwinds for this nuclear story now, or is it just a glimpse? Thank goodness, yes, there are tailwinds. So any, any government that is looking seriously at solving its energy problems has to be taking nuclear seriously. Uh, there, it, there's no other viable option at scale. And so you look at countries, for example, like Sweden or the Netherlands, right, uh, or Finland that have finally gotten serious about nuclear. Thank goodness they are. And the countries that are still hesitant 
ought to read the memo we've sent them. I mean, that obviously figuratively. <laughs> Everyone else has noticed this. What's wrong with you? If Japan, post-Fukushima, is bringing its nuclear power plants back online, that's a hint. Uh, Germany hasn't caught the memo, which is extraordinary to more or less everybody. But there are other countries. I was in Austria last week speaking to a cross-section of the Austrian parliament about international perspectives on the Austrian energy security situation and said the same thing to them. Said, you have to take nuclear seriously and get busy building it because your historical hostility to it notwithstanding, you can't have energy security without nuclear. Uh, but there are still places that are that are hesitant. So if we look at uh, solar and wind, we get a lot of questions on the demand side for, for solar and wind amidst all of this turbulence seen in financial markets uh, surrounding some of the big players in, for example, the wind industry. Um, if we look at the demand side, we've had a couple of uh, tenders, uh, basically with no bidders. Um, we saw a headline out of the UK, was it a month or two ago, uh, for a big uh, offshore wind tender without any bids. Uh, so what do you make of the current trends in the wind turbine industry? Is it uh, a trend that we should expect to continue and how are they coping with the cost pressures you know? The largest issue in wind is China. A lot of this has to do with what was originally Chinese wind turbine restrictions, mostly due to COVID and the extensive Chinese COVID lockdown, which wreaked havoc on global supply chains, as of course we all know. But even since China nominally opened up, there hasn't been a big pickup in supply chain reliability because China has worked out that it can put, put, put pressure on the world and use its role in clean tech supply chains, which in many cases is a monopoly, to force some kind of diplomatic or political rapprochement or, or um, concession from Western countries that are desperately looking for things like wind turbines. But also, there has been a weird lack of investment in the West in our own wind turbine manufacturing. It's not that it doesn't exist, it's just that it really doesn't exist at scale. But also there's tremendous volatility in electricity markets at the moment. And part of that is a holdover from the peak of the energy crisis in 2021 and 2022. And part of it is the rapid transformation that we are now seeing as a consequence of that energy crisis in electricity markets. Uh, so it's hard for companies to, I think, calculate anything. So if you are in the business of generating electricity and the price of electricity is intensely volatile, it becomes very difficult to work out where your break-even point is, what your profits look like, and if, and then how do you pitch investors? So if I have a few million dollars to throw around to put into an electricity generation project, and you can't tell me what my rate of return is going to be, why would I put my money in it? I mean, that's it takes the speculation to a, an irresponsible point. It's not that nobody's doing it. It's that savvy investors are waiting until markets stabilize a little bit. Now, they might be waiting for a very, very long time, uh, and that could have negative consequences for the energy transition. But I do think we're about to see bigger play from some of the Central Asian countries. I do think that as Ukraine increasingly stabilizes its energy sector situation, it will be allowed to export more power and that will allow for relatively cheap, very cheap Ukrainian power to, to hit the European markets. And we're seeing increasing interconnectedness in a lot of other places. And so it might level out a little bit, but, but I see no short-term to even medium-term reason. Because you have to remember, of course, electricity has to be made from something. And so we have wind, but as we've just discussed, there are supply chain issues with wind turbines. They're not no wind, there no wind farms coming online. So DTEC International, for example, the largest private power company in Ukraine, DTEC brought a 117 megawatt wind farm online in Ukraine in June. So in the middle of the war, DTEC managed to do that. And it has 
wind projects coming online in Poland. But there are regulatory issues with, with all of these. So in Poland, for example, the, the regulation that determines how tall a wind turbine can be is based on how far it is from another structure. But there just aren't that many places where you can have the necessary height because basically they're trying to stop it if it ever falls over from hitting anything. But the wind is better the higher you go up. So from a cost perspective, you want the highest wind turbine you can get. But from a siting perspective, you have very few options. And so these are regulatory issues. That happens to be Poland's problem. But these are regulatory issues that exist in lots of places in, in various forms. Solar panels, similar problem. Natural gas, still super volatile. Coal remains an issue. Nuclear is going to take another couple of years to, to even begin breaking ground on new nuclear. And so electricity generation is itself a bit vulnerable at the moment. And we're seeing that in the markets. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'd like to conclude with a discussion on the energy transition amidst two wars now, not just only one war, uh, with both the uh, crisis in Israel Gaza now needing funding apparently uh, from the US uh, on top of the funding for the Ukrainians. Um, we're now stuck in a situation where the Republicans clearly try to curb spending on, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act to one-to-one -one match the spending needed, for example, for Israel now. So how do you view the political landscape and the willingness to spend on this energy transition amidst these wars? Oh, American politics. Um, so I am, a, I am an American citizen. I am an American voter. And it is really just a tragedy and a travesty what is going on in U.S. government at the moment. We seem to have lost any functional ability to govern ourselves. And that, of course, has massive consequences for the rest of the world because whatever one's opinion of the United States, we are still the United States and play an outsized role or, or perhaps, according to some, not a big enough role in the rest of the world. And what that means is that the current dysfunction in Washington has the potential to freeze U.S. engagement on lots of fronts. And so you're quite right. We are seeing chaos on the Hill, chaos in Congress, blocking assistance for a number of different countries. Ukraine, yes. Uh, all, and that's because there is a divide in the Republican Party and the Republican Party controls the House of Representatives, half of Congress. And half of the Republicans want more Ukraine aid because they are more traditional, as we would say, hawks and want to contain Russia. And the other half Lord knows how they reached this point, but they seem to think that uh, helping Ukraine is now a waste of U.S. money, either because they are genuinely concerned about American budget uh, issues or because they think we've just given enough already or because they have fallen prey to Russian propaganda or etc. There, These are, in many cases, sincerely held opinions, in some cases, cynical political moves. But it does mean that... Uh, Ukraine is probably not going to get assistance. I look forward to being wrong about that. But as a practical matter, it's not looking good, at least right now. On the war in the Middle East, it's important to note that the last time the Middle East was angry with the United States for blindly backing Israel, it resulted in the 1973 oil embargo, which nearly crippled the entire United States economy and resulted in years of financial hardship and billions and billions, if not trillions and trillions of dollars of economic damage. I see no particular evidence yet that OPEC countries and other Middle Eastern countries are planning on using energy to make their displeasure known. It's certainly within the realm of possibility. Uh, I think to some extent, the United States' blind support for Israel is appalling. 
because it's bad for Jews everywhere and it's bad for Palestinians everywhere and it is perpetuating a conflict the root of which cannot be solved militarily. And so as tens of thousands of Palestinians die for what really amounts to short-term revenge instincts, what the United States has done is green light and indeed then fund and support the worst of Israel's instincts, which will do nothing good for anyone. It may also mean that Biden loses the next election because enough of the Democratic electorate is furious at his blindly pro-Israel stance and perhaps just won't vote, at which point the Democrats lose. Now, if that happens, you can expect zero assistance for Ukraine going forward. If, because at present it looks like Trump is the only viable alternative, his indictments, shocking number of indictments and possible in time convictions notwithstanding. So the upheaval of U.S. politics has the potential, and indeed, I, I will make this stronger, U.S. politics will royal energy markets going forward. Now, to a fairly large extent, our energy exports are decoupled from our political situation because our economy is mostly unregulated relative to a lot of other economies. So our LNG will continue to ship from our LNG terminals. In the long run, whoever is president, whichever party controls, can affect things like permitting, like offshore wind permits or drilling permits for new oil and gas ventures in, for example, Alaska. But in the short term, it is just political upheaval that could affect energy markets, but but it will. It will absolutely scare energy markets if, for example, political uncertainty in the United States make people wonder about the price of a, of a barrel of crude oil coming out of the United States. Um, as far as a widening conflict in the Middle East, as a former journalist in the Middle East and a former Middle East hand as a diplomat. Uh, and indeed, I have a degree in Middle Eastern history and politics. So I have followed this issue very carefully. It seems unlikely to me that there will be a broad energy war in the Middle East. Not impossible, but unlikely. Let's call that maybe 20%. But it also seems likely to me that we will see an expansion of the current conflict as a couple of neighboring and in some cases just nearby, Muslim or Arab countries decide to react to what they view as U.S. aggression uh, and what the U.S. views as their aggression. And war one way or another in an area that is populated by energy-important countries will have energy consequences. It could mean, for example, that Saudi finally decides it absolutely won't take U.S. nuclear technology, in which case maybe it gets it from Russia. That will have energy consequences. It may be that OPEC decides to further cut production in order to keep, keep prices high and slightly reduce volatility in price by doing so, and that will have massive global, political, and financial consequences from the energy markets. Uh, we know that the Tamar gas fields have been taken offline, and that's those are small, but they do nonetheless mean that, for example, Egypt might be able to export less LNG. And if Egypt is exporting less, it's exporting less to Europe. And if Europe's getting less, maybe it has to get more from Russia or more from the United States. And then we get back into that question of the musical chairs sort of rotating supply and demand where depending on the fungibility of the product. So expect some volatility. Part of the reason why the outbreak of conflict in Israel and Palestine is causing some upheaval in energy markets, although to be fair, not much, at least not yet, but some, is because those markets were already very, very tight, courtesy of Russia and its manufactured energy crisis. If we look at the uh, most recent Israel bill brought forward by the Republican uh, leadership in uh, in Congress, um, at least on, this, on the surface, it looks like they want curb spending 
um, in the Inflation Reduction Act to transfer those money to Israel. Uh, so how important is the Inflation Reduction Act for energy markets ahead and the overall electrification of the U.S. economy? The, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, or just the IRA, is an astonishingly good piece of legislation from the perspective of the energy transition. It really has pumped huge amounts of stimulus money into the businesses that are necessary to get the clean tech and related sectors up and running. What Europe should do is immediately pass its own, recognizing that Europe has additional complications from things like state aid laws. But whatever can be stolen from the IRA should be stolen by everyone everywhere. It is a fantastic piece of legislation for energizing energy transition markets. What the Republicans are trying to do, and I should say, with Republican support for Israel, it would have been incredibly easy for the Republicans and the new Speaker of the House to get a clean Israel support bill through. They're looking at sort of $14 billion. The United States can't even count that low most of the time. And so it, it, it would have passed like that. It would have been incredibly fast and incredibly simple. But instead, the new Speaker of the House decided to use it to try to get rid of Biden policy. And so it's trying to do two things. One, it's trying to slash uh, funding from our tax authority, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, and it's trying to pull money out of the, the energy transition. And what that means is it's now going to be a huge fight. The Democrats are not going to agree to that at all. And in fact, the part that was involving the IRS was a self-funded part of the IRS. So it's literally just taking money that it, it, the whole thing is just uh, nonsense, but it's political nonsense. And therefore it has its own justifications, priorities, and goals. It is purely a leverage play. It will delay aid anywhere to anything. I, unless the dynamics change considerably, it will not get anywhere. And I don't see the Democrats agreeing to gutting the IRA or the IRS to get a small Israel aid package through. The other thing the Republicans have done is make sure that Ukraine gets nothing in any of this. And so that will be its own separate fight. Neither of which has a huge direct impact on energy markets, although obviously if the IRA is gutted, then yes, there will be a huge impact on energy markets, but or at least American clean tech and energy transition. But in terms of global energy markets, whether or not the U.S. sends money to Israel or whether or not the U.S. continues to send money to Ukraine isn't going to have any Im immediate automatic and direct connection to what's going on in energy markets. In Ukraine's case, there will, of course, be knock-on effects because Russia will benefit therefrom, and Russia, by definition, affects energy markets. But on the Israel and Palestine side of things, neither is an important producer or consumer of electricity or any other fuel. Uh, so there won't be any big consequences unless we see an energy reaction from the rest of the least. I think we will conclude with a great question from uh, one of our viewers, uh, Jason. Uh, he's asking you how the capital cost and implementation time of the generation four nuclear plants that you discussed earlier compared to wind and solar. Will any non-government company put up the capital to risk the uncertainty of demand to build these new reactors? So to that first part of that question, Wind and solar can be brought online in six months, depending on how long it takes you to secure the, the turbines or the solar panels. With current supply chain issues, which are better than they were during COVID, but are by no means fixed on, on wind and solar, you're looking at longer than that just to get the wind turbines uh, or the solar panels. But as a theoretical matter, they can move very, very, very quickly. Uh, nuclear takes a long time. If a government were ready to license and approve a nuclear power plant without a six-year regulatory review delay, like we have in the United States, sometimes 20-year regular regulatory review delay, then theoretically a nuclear plant could be brought online in about five years. Uh, and that's partly because some of the 
most important parts of a nuclear plant, like the reactor pressure vessel, for example, which is the container that keeps the nuclear reaction tight inside so that if something goes wrong, it doesn't go anywhere. It stops a meltdown. Uh, those take four to five years to commission and have built. And so four to five, five years is about the shortest time it could take. Now you add regulatory issues to that. And depending on how regulatory prescriptive a country is, it could be anywhere between adding three years and adding 30 years before a plant will be approved. And what that means is that financing does become a big question. And so your, your question is very much on point to some of the things that are being discussed in the nuclear industry. I can tell you, I am the CEO of an SMR, which stands for Small Modular Nuclear Reactor. We take the N out, but SMR, which are basically miniature nuclear power plants that come down from 800 megawatts to 1600 megawatt plants down to 50 to 300 megawatts. So pocket nukes, as, as I've heard them sometimes called. Those cost between, well, nobody knows for sure because they haven't been commercially built, but they cost between about $1 and $2 billion per SMR, which is extraordinarily expensive, but it's not prohibitively expensive. And so there are private companies that are willing to finance it. It, but it becomes a weird tussle with governments that want to control the entire process because everybody's scared of nuclear. The fear of nuclear is no longer justified by current technology, and there is no choice if we're going to achieve the energy transition. But nonetheless, governments are loath to let go of any part of the process. And so a company like mine, which is trying to privately finance and privately build nuclear power plants on privately owned coal power plants now, so to phase out coal power plants in favor of clean nuclear, it's still a hugely regulated industry. And so it becomes very difficult. It's, it's also hard because the allocation of risk for nuclear build hasn't been worked out commercially and hasn't been worked out as a balance between the private sector and governments. So what we need to see are, for example, insurance mechanisms uh, that allow investors in a company like mine to have their investments protected to some extent, or at least as much as other investments in a wind or solar farm would be protected. And those mechanisms don't exist yet. So there is money, there's plenty of money for nuclear. It's just nobody yet knows how to do it. It's it's we're working it out as we go. And because it's nuclear, everyone's scared of being the first to do it. But someone's going to have to be. And how exactly those financial deals get structured is going to be a creative process. You can't use project finance for it, for example, because it just doesn't work like that. Or, or I should say it's never been used. And so as governments work out how to support these deals through, for example, insurance mechanisms, it will become a little bit easier, but all of this is still very much being, not even quite worked out yet. It's sort of still being discussed and debated and considered, and it hasn't actually been tested on the ground yet. Surya Jayansi of ENEY, first of all, thank you very much for joining us at Real Vision again. And I think I speak on behalf of most of our viewers when I say that we cheer on your journey of bringing more nuclear online around the European continent. It was a, such a pleasure to host you once again on Real Vision. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Andreas, and thank you so much for asking me back. I look forward to the possibility of a future conversation, and I wish all of us Good luck with our energy transitions. I certainly look forward to our next discussion as well, Surya. Until then, my name is Andreas Steno. Thank you very much for watching this deep dive into the energy transition and the links to geopolitics. See you soon. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. 
take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. 